Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Security Insider podcast. And today we are continuing our series where we look at uh, the potential impacts for security of a pandemic. And our guest is Julian Talbot. So Julian, in the last podcast, we started talking about cybersecurity. And one of the things that you mentioned was people receiving perhaps scam or bogus emails professing to be able to sell people, um, you know, information about how to survive the virus or whatever it may be. But I guess that's only the tip of the iceberg. It's the disinformation that people find on things like Facebook and social media, um, in addition to other things that need to be really careful. And also, you mentioned people weren't talking about cybersecurity very much. In the context of what? John, that's a great point. We, as I said earlier in that last podcast, the um, the idea of managing physical security and stockpiles, and then we're moving on to the next step about immune systems and communication and maintaining all those things. But I don't think there's really a good understanding yet of the implications from a cyber point of view about how pandemic affects people. So that when you think about individuals and organisations who are seeking to take advantage of this, people are often in a state of panic or they are perhaps just curious and they're looking for news and looking for something that they believe is authoritative. But fake news is, is not going away. I mean, fake news arguably has been with us ever since the dawn of humankind. But now it spreads at the speed of electrons. It's We've seen Cambridge Analytica, you know, any number of groups have managed to use um, influence, not even just fake news, but selective influence to get a particular viewpoint. And with populism on the rise globally, you know, you could see some arguments for people saying, no, we must close our borders. And so, you know, right-wing groups or whatever groups could be using the pandemic with a little bit of fake news just to push people over the line and create um, a sense of unease, perhaps uh, even a sense of panic in some groups, and use that for political agendas. And Now, that's without even thinking about um, phishing attacks where you start to see a whole lot of you know, we found the cure. There's a new vaccine out. People, a lot of people who, especially if you follow the social news and you've been uh, a little concerned about it without being fully aware, and, and I will just say, look, people need to use the government websites for a source of information because they're generally pretty good and they they are measured and they are up to date and they're giving us the best available information. But the reality is that most of the world uses Facebook, uses social media, and when you see something come into your feed, you can't help but think about it. So when you see there's a vaccine out or this particular drug works here or click on this link because it, this will tell you how to manage it or this will tell you the latest for your area. Um, so that's a really, um, I think, a, an area that we haven't really understood fully or haven't looked at and probably will in hindsight after this particular coronavirus goes away for the next one. But I think even now security managers need to be thinking about what's the impact on their people, on, on their families, on society of this. So, it, and again, Facebook's doing more work. A lot of, most of the social media, I won't speak on Facebook, but most of the social media are trying largely to get their fake news under control. But it's very difficult to tell what is fake. I know We know with the, um, some of the Russian entities have set up identities on social media and worked within groups posting sometimes for years in advance. So it's very difficult to tell a, a fake user or an agent provocateur in that sense until they start posting disinformation. 
And yeah. that, all that is, we say, without thinking about the staff who work in cybersecurity. They may well not be turning up for work because they've been quarantined. They may have come down with even just a, a bad cold and they're self-isolating. So their access to work, unless they've got a work-from-home capability, now we, we don't have as many people working from the cyber side of it who might be managing fake news. We might even be doing the most basic things like patches for service. So you've got to be thinking about everything that happens. It's got to be a whole supply chain that happens from security patch updates and operating systems and software down the line to the people who install it, to the people who administer the IT systems. Um, and when you, and it's bad enough if you're thinking about a small company where you've got a, a couple of servers or even a large corporation where you might have hundreds of servers. But when you start to think about Google, Amazon, Facebook, these kind of things where you're running server farms, um, any vulnerability that, that exists now or that is identified, um, you know, how do you prioritise that when you've got maybe 50% of your staff and you've got operations? I mean, security often takes second place to a lot of companies to just doing the operations, making sure your marketing is working, for example, in your accounting systems. And we'll get to the, you know, doing the basic stuff like updating patches when we get around to it. But now we're dealing with a, a, a situation where the people are trying to exploit the fake news and it's trying to exploit any weaknesses in the system. Um, and we're also down, I don't know, maybe 10%. Let's say it was 40% perhaps of all people will get it over the next 12 to 18 months. That's so at the decision point, which security managers really need to be thinking about now. Yeah, you mentioned in the last podcast that people might potentially be out of work for up to 30 days, you know, possibly off work unwell for 14 days while the virus carries out the natural course of its infection and then quarantine for another 14 days afterwards. Now, if I'm a, a facility and we don't have a service level agreement with our security systems integrator or provider, if I've got people in-house who are supposed to be patching all of my access control and my intrusion detection and my CCTV systems, and that might come down to one person for a large building or even possibly a shopping centre or whatever it may be, uh, and that person is off for a month, that is a long time to leave critical security systems potentially vulnerable. Absolutely, John. It's uh, it's one of the areas that really hasn't been thought through, I think, for most organisations because we're used to this idea that, okay, well, if someone's not working on the factory floor, then we you know, maybe can't build our BMWs or our automobiles or our iPhones. But when you look at the background, you know, there are always, around the world, there are always hackers, there's always someone who's, you know, foreign intelligence services, all sorts of entities who will still be working 24-7 and maybe their guys are not down sick and your security personnel are with the coronavirus or even self-isolating. So thinking about ways of putting in place work from home arrangements or having um, some sort of a, a call-off agreement with a, another organisation, a largest uh, outsourced provider perhaps who can, if not guarantee that you'll have somebody when you need them, at least has a higher likelihood of having someone there and thinking about what happens. for so many companies and governments. Sorry, Julian, yet, I'll just get you to go back two seconds. We are, we just missed the tail end of what you were saying there. You were talking about people in governments who may not have thought it through. Sure. Yeah. So, good to go? Yep, go for it. Right. So, 
a lot of the implications of this sort of being able to keep your staff in place, whether it's in government or large organisations or you know, not-for-profits, uh, with dealing with ransomware attacks on a, a growing scale. In fact, some states and some countries are actually looking at legislating to make it illegal to pay a ransom so that it try and prevent it at that point. But if you look at combining, and this is you know, in almost every critical incident I've looked at, there's never been a single factor which has led to, whether it's a global financial crisis or it's a fatality or it's any sort of a incident has been a chain of events. And when you think about um, the stock markets, for example, are, are fully priced. Um, coronavirus has, has done some huge damage there already. It's looking like it's potentially going to kill tens of millions of people globally um, and will likely continue to the point where it's circulating the planet. Now, you add these sort of effects together and think about ransomware and opportunistic criminals, essentially. If your security staff and security systems are down, for as you say, up to 30 days maybe, and you don't have people in place, or even if you've got 20 people working, if you take two people offline, does that mean that, you know, if you could have done the job with 18 people, you would have done the job with 18 people. <laughs> yeah. So which, what area of business do you prioritise? One of the best tools I've um, used for looking at this sort of thing is a, um, a thing called bow tie analysis, which is looking largely at causal chains. And um, I'm going to do a, a plug for my book here, but the reason being you can download the images here for um, bow tie and bow tie tables. At, uh, the Security Risk Management Aid Memoir uh, is essentially a collection of, um, in that, if you can go to srmam.com, you'll be able to download some examples of um, root cause analysis and bow tie analysis and also things like security risk models and maturity models. But this particular one that I like is, is bow tie. And most people are familiar largely with this diagram, which has an, an event in the middle. And on the left-hand side are multiple causes. And on the right-hand side, multiple consequences, which is hence the bow tie you know, multiple causes narrowing to a single event to multiple consequences. But when you turn that into a table and you start to look at, okay, so we have this coronavirus and this could happen. So what's our treatment for that? And then you think about, okay, well, if we have a treatment which might be in this cybersecurity example we're talking about, we might have a an outsourced provider arrangement where even a couple of outsourced providers standing by who we can then call on. And then you have it the idea of an escalation factor, which is, okay, well, what if my outsource provider is actually in an area, you know, like Wuhan or somewhere locally in Sydney or wherever it is, and they're in an area where they can't come to work and they can't provide their own security and they can't meet their obligations. So how do you think about what's the next step there? So your next step might be you train up somebody else in-house for contingency, or maybe you just close the business. Maybe that's your contingency plan. But the idea is to think about this causal chain without getting too much into it, it's those cascading downstream consequences and then escalation factors and then mitigation factors and then more escalation factors. And having that modelled out, um, and as I say, bow tie tables are probably one of the best, simplest tools I know where you can do this just on a, um, a whiteboard basically with your team and you can look at how it might all come together. It's, it's essentially red teaming and there's a couple of other good um, templates on that website which look at um, root cause analysis with a, a pre-event and a post-event and in, and also looking at the human factors, so supervisory issues, um, leadership issues, skill issues and thinking about all those little things which plug into because it's 
you know, nothing that <laughs> if it was that easy, we'd all be out of a job and we you know, wouldn't be able to pay our mortgages. But it's it's just about forecasting a little bit. And you know, I would even suggest that whether you've got a large security uh, team or you've got a large security responsibility, is red teaming it. You know, put yourself in the shoes of a attacker in the world of the virus and think, well, how could I exploit? It's what's going to happen, and when will I know that this company's having some weakness? Well, they're probably going to announce that they, they've had to lay off a thousand people or they've had uh, to close the factory because of self isolation or whatever it is. So, these are all one side, which are lead indicators for the bad guys, which should also be lead indicators for us, you know, the, the good guys. Yeah. What, what was the website you were referring to? Can you give us that URL again? Sure, it's at www.srmam.com. And it's, it's the website for the Security Risk Management Aid Memoir, which is my latest book, which is designed to be a memory jogger, if you like. Everything you need to know about security in, in one small book, which, of course, it isn't to be impossible. But it's, it's yeah. some of the highlights and some of the models in that you can download for free from that website. So all the, all the graphics and all the models are there for free. There's a few templates um, and resources and articles as well. So, um, yeah. Now the yeah, red certainly drop me a line. Anybody, I encourage anybody to drop me a line if you have questions and you're looking for a, a, you know, what I think is a suitable model for this kind of a situation. What is the best way for people to contact you? Uh, you can either reach me through my website juliantalbot.com or via srmam.com or just send me an email to julian at juliantalbot.com. That's julian at juliantalbot.com. So sure. happy to help where I can. Excellent. And you mentioned your book. Where's the easiest place for people to find that? On the website, obviously. Is it available through Amazon and other sources or mainly just the website? Uh, Amazon. Amazon's the easiest place. But if you go to the website, you'll find the link there to all the Amazons, UK and uh, Australia and the US. Excellent. And the name of the book again? Yeah, I think it's that. The Security Risk Management Aid Memoir. Okay. Excellent. So it's a memory jogger, really, the aid memoir for... um, a little summary of all those little acronyms that you can't quite remember and those models that you'd really like to be able to show a client but you don't have time to sketch them up. So That's right. I reckon I could more spend... More or less what I found useful. I could spend a lifetime writing down everything I can't remember anymore, only I can't remember it. <laughs> um, now, the red teaming, that's a really interesting point because this is something that perhaps a lot of security companies haven't thought about or even departments haven't thought about or haven't done because they've been in response mode. but really sitting down and sort of thinking, well, where are our vulnerabilities? What is what is likely to be the biggest area of pain for us is an extremely important process, I gather. Absolutely. You know, I think it's one of the things that we don't do often enough or well enough. But I mean, I've gotten into the habit over the years of even just looking at near-miss events and doing a, a full analysis of that. But you don't need to wait for a near-miss. You just sit down with the team and say, okay, in this context, which we're talking about coronavirus, in this context, how are we vulnerable and in what ways could we or are we be more vulnerable than we were last year or last month even? And that's, you know, nobody knows how to take down a system like the insiders. I mean, there are, I think you'd agree that it's quite difficult to, uh, for an outsider to attack a system without some really good knowledge or a brute force. But, you know, we, we as insiders, we know where the pressure points are. We know what's going to go on. We already know where we're understaffed and under budget, and we know where our, our mitigation strategies are running behind. So 
So if you think about it, and again, I like that um, the root cause or the bow tie model to think about likelihood management, the left-hand side. So how do we reduce the likelihood of an attack? And then the right-hand side of the bow tie is consequence management. So how do we, if we are breached physically or from a cyber point of view or from any point of view, if we are breached, how do we then stop that from turning into a consequence? And now, you know, if you're a listed company, one of your consequences is obviously going to be your stock price. Um, certainly, I think for every organisation, one of your consequences is going to be human impact. Uh, and then if you think about, more importantly, that not just um, likelihood prevention, but you think about the cascading downstream environments of what could go wrong and how you might manage it from a, um, a social media point of view, from a crisis team management, from a public relations point of view, and of course from a, a human point of view, because this is what our what coronavirus is really attacking. It's just creating a an environment where it might be easier for us to be subject to ransomware or to a phishing attack or something like that. So, you know, for example, I'll give you a simple example. If you just take the phishing and the ransomware kind of point of view, if you do nothing, then already the likelihood of someone clicking on a phishing email is higher if it says, here's, you know, words to the effect of, here's the cure to coronavirus or, uh, you know, here's, sorry, this is the local hospital, your child, spouse, best friend, whatever, has been admitted to the hospital. Please click here to record that you've seen this. You're already creating an environment where people are more likely to press that. So part of the strategy there is to think about, okay, well, I need to have this conversation and reinforce this whole idea of phishing and ransomware and the nature of links with all of my staff, everybody who's on email. And you also need to think about how our security team is going to communicate that to the broader audience and how we're going to blacklist or whitelist or perhaps um, scan for these kind of things. So now that's, that's just a really simple example without even looking at any particular business. But when you start looking at um, aviation, transportation infrastructure, look at critical infrastructure like energy, um, there's a whole range of process control systems there, which you know, I don't want to say incredibly vulnerable, but we're now exposed to new vulnerabilities, which, you know, fingers crossed, we won't have to worry about it, but better to be prepared than have to worry about it in hindsight. Yeah, absolutely. Now, this is a, a an interesting question, and I'm not sure if you're going to be able to answer this, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Uh, how, given that online news and social media is such a big part of the world these days, and really the way a lot of media organisations tend to make money is by getting you to click on links and by driving interaction and engagement and all the rest of it, how much worse do you think media reporting is if at all, is making the whole coronavirus pandemic panic? Uh, I, I can certainly answer that, John. Again, whether I'm right or not, I don't know. But what we do know is that the um, media affects what we think about. Now, there's been a lot of research that says we, you can't tell someone what to think, but you can very easily tell them what to think about. There's been a lot of research around uh, the impact of even just subliminal advertising on a website inside there. Now, I'm, I was going to re- recommend a great book for uh, for the listeners to read would be a book called Presuasion. That's P-R-E hyphen S-U-A-S-I-O-N by a, rock, a chap called Robert Cialdini. And he's a, a university lecturer, but the, the book is written in a very easy-to-read conversational tone, and he sent himself 
the mission of, of learning how to um, how salespeople influence people and how you can use influence for, for good. And, and a simple example is he quotes some research which looks at um, studies of so coming up to the 10th anniversary of 9/11. They some researchers did a, a survey which said, okay, so now imagine this is two months before the anniversary, and they said surveyed a, a group of Americans said. What are the most important events of you know, the last 20 years? And all well, in fact, I think it's the last 70 years since World War II. And roughly 30% of people cited 9-11 as one of the most significant impacts globally in that time. There were a whole range of other things, as you'd imagine. In the lead-up to 9-11, the media were talking about the anniversary of 9-11 and for about three or four weeks beforehand. So... In that little window period of a, a couple of weeks, they went back and did the same survey over a different group of people, actually the same sort of people. 70% of people thought that 9-11 was the most important event of that period. Now, that's a, a massive response, you know, from 30% to 70%. And yet three weeks after the anniversary, they went back and did the survey again, and it was back down to 30%. So what the media project to us, and, and, and 9-11 didn't change. Historically, it was no more or less important but it more than doubled the number of people who thought it was a significant and important factor and it meant they were thinking about this and they were thinking about all the implications. So putting coronavirus in, pe- in front of people constantly uh, is good for selling newspapers or in fact good for selling advertising online these days, but it's good for selling advertising. But it's actually not helping the cause. It, it's causing people to think about it and to stock up on toilet paper and stock up on face masks and do all sorts of things which really, if you just look at, the logical advice, you know, the rational advice, we don't need extra toilet paper, we don't need extra masks, we don't need to be concerned about it, we just need to manage um, human, you know, keeping our distancing, we need to manage washing our hands and our immune systems and go about life as normal. Because sooner or later, this is this will be around the world. Odds are most of us, perhaps half of us, will probably come down with it at some point in the next couple of years. But creating you know, the media implications, and it's certainly a lot of this stuff and the media is driving the stock market collapse, for example, as well as the panic buying. So, and the stock market collapse is then going to lead to downstream consequences. Is this whole idea of causal chains, um, unemployment, um, additional suicides from depression, um, people defaulting on their loans because um, you know, this is about thinking about uh, part-time or casual workers or the gig economy who just don't won't have an income for this period of time. So, there are all these ramifications of putting it in front of the media. So. Yeah, well, the media stopped doing it, though, obviously not, but I think as humans and as managers, we need to be thinking about the messages that we are putting in place side by side with that. So the, the positive messages about what you can do, not what you need to worry about. That's yeah. Right sure. or wrong, that's my thoughts on it. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems to me that you, know, you mentioned in the last podcast, threat fatigue, Um which is, you know, the period at which people sort of tend to get over this and, and move on to the next thing is around three to four weeks. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens over the next couple of weeks because it is definitely top of mind at the moment and it's pretty much on the news cycle 24-7 globally. Uh, it'll be interesting to see whether or not it actually gets less airtime as the next big thing happens. Well, look, that's a very good point. I mean, the, um, the cynical side of me says that when... Politicians want to avoid a crisis, they'll um, call for some sort of a, they'll create a new crisis, so something else which might 
know, we'll, we'll hold a referendum to decide whether we should change the flag or something like that, <laughs> which will then hijack the news cycle, of course. Now, I don't know if that's going to happen because it is such a, um, it's a newsworthy story and it's certainly an important story. You know, I'm not saying we should put it aside just because it's uh, so prevalent, but I think it's the nature of the news and the nature of the way we present this um, and again, we don't have much control as, as individuals over the media. We have control over what media we choose to take in. Um, but I think, you know, as, as you particularly as a publisher do have a lot of control about the sort of content and the good news that you can bring out, you know, the supportive messages for you know, the fact that it's um, largely the fatality rate is, is relatively low. So 99% of people who get it will not die. And you know, um, 60% of people in the world will probably never get it. Uh, vaccine will come out, you know, managing your immune system, managing your rest, all these things. I think they're the sort of comforting messages that people need to see because they're things you can you can do. When you when you just think about coronavirus and intensive care and respiratory disease, there's not much to be done apart from sit and worry about it. But yeah. You know, they're the kind of messages I think people in media can share. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Well, look, Julian, thank you very much for your time. It's been enlightening chatting to you. Uh, and for those people who want to find out more, don't forget to go and visit Julian's website or check out his new book. Um, and if you want more podcasts like this one, don't forget you can go to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, the Android Store, and so on. And there's a ton of other podcasts in this series, including the last one that we did with Julian uh, talking about physical security and the, uh, the the pandemic and the coronavirus and all the rest of it. Julian, thanks again for being on the show and we look forward to speaking to you next time. John, thanks very much for having me. It's been a, a pleasure and as I said earlier, I'm happy to help anybody if they'd like to, a little bit more information about models or ideas and that. So okay. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you.